1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was, the go- this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of the Lord. In 18, rather, 1938, Harvard University set out on a study that is still going today, 75-year-old study, looking at happiness in men. And they picked 730 men, and they started to meet with them every year and take extensive tests, physical tests, interpersonal tests, diagnostic tests, uh, and they've, they've continued to do this now for 75 years. It's called the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It, Robert Waldinger is the current director, and he gave a TED Talk uh, on, on the secret to happiness from this longitudinal study, which is very interesting TED Talk. And he said, here's what they found, is that most of these men began their lives thinking that if they could be successful have a reputation, build a career, and be well-known, they'd be happy. And what they found over the 75 years is that the men who shifted their focus to relationships are the ones who were happy at the end of their life. The happiest men were the ones who invested most in relationships. They lived longer. They aged better. The study also found that loneliness is toxic, that men who reported few close friendships or a low quality of relationship were likely to die at an earlier age, suffer more early from dementia, and in general have a poor quality of life. Now that study is, uh, I think, uh, both hopeful and troubling. It's hopeful because of this idea that if the most important thing in life is friendship, that at least is a goal that we all can obtain, right? It's not some esoteric secret that you have to uh, be rich to, to have or go to some mountain in India to find. Theoretically, we all can do that. What's troubling about a study like that is how many people are increasingly finding it difficult to have rich, intimate friendships. And how loneliness in our culture seems to be at an epidemic rate. You know, when people are honest, one of the things that I often hear is that the greatest pain in their life is the disappointment they have in key relationships. And I don't know if this has always been the case, 
but I do know that relationships increasingly seem disposable in our culture, that long-term commitments seem rare and rare, not only in marriage but in friendships. Facebook maybe is sort of an ironic caricature where you can easily friend someone and then unfriend them. And we seem to be aching for the kind of committed relationships that the Harvard study calls for. Christians, of course, rightly emphasize marriage as the beautiful expression of covenant relationship. But perhaps, especially in a world where 50% of adults are not married, we don't emphasize enough other types of covenantal relationships that also meet that need. The poet George Herbert wrote uh, a poem about this. and One line says, But love is lost. The way of friendship is gone. Though David had his Jonathan, Christ his John. A few years ago, a young woman named Carrie English wrote an essay in the Boston Globe. It was titled, A Bridesmaid Lament. And her best friend was getting married. She says, in the vows they wrote, the bride and groom gushed about how lucky they were to have found someone who loved them unconditionally, someone who was now their best friend. And I stood there under the flower-covered gazebo thinking, I thought I was your best friend. Surely I can't be the only person who feels like weddings are a bit of a rejection. Two people announcing in public that they love each other more than they love you. Weddings change friendships forever. She'll be there for him in sickness and in health. She'll be there for you on your birthday or when he's late to work. So this kind of angst is out there everywhere in in the culture. Jonathan and David, of course, would fare well in the Harvard study. And I think they model a kind of relationship that we should pay attention to today. It's not an exact parallel. Their culture was very different. But I I think one of the reasons the scriptures devote so much energy to this story of friendship is because God wants you and I to have a few people in life with whom we're committed to go the distance with. And I'm basing that assumption on Christ's prayer in John 17. There's that wonderful teaching about the Trinity. Then Christ prays that we would have the same kind of soul oneness with one another that he and the Father enjoy with each other. So so here's the assumption I'm making, and maybe you can push back on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this, that if you want to live the kind of life that you want, if you want to be the kind of person that you want, if you want to have a healthy and whole life and fulfill the destiny God's given you to fulfill, you need a handful of relationships with whom you are committed to go the distance. And I mean by that both spouses, family members, and non-spouses. Not easy to do, though. Not easy to do. Let's look at this story a little bit, and I, and I will admit from the outset I had planned on looking at their whole friendship tonight, which goes all the way into 2 Samuel. But um, I got into it today, and about 2 o'clock I realized we're not going to get there. <laughs> so this is part one, okay? 
um, of, of their friendship. Interesting phrase, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. It's a Hebrew word that means bound together or to tie together. Soul can be translated spirit, nefesh, your deepest, most essence. And so it's a beautiful way, almost a poetic way of describing two people whose very hearts are kind of fused together. And David says, or Jonathan says that he loves David. Later, David will say that he loves Jonathan. And David, or rather Jonathan, is so uh, committed to this relationship. And it's interesting, we don't know all the reasons why. It strikes us as a little bit odd. Uh, Jonathan knew that David was a great warrior. They don't seem to have known much more about each other. It seems kind of like friendship at first sight. But for whatever reason, he knew at the start that they were supposed to go the distance together. I took a little informal poll this week, and I asked people, have you ever had a friendship like that where uh, you just kind of knew the first day you met him that you'd be at his funeral? And uh, I, I, I only got two yeses. One of them said, I went to Vanderbilt University. First day I got there, a friend said, you need to know Dan. Wrote down his number. I went over to Dan's dorm, knocked on his door. The moment I met him, I knew he was going to be my best friend for life. 30 years later, 6.45, Tuesday mornings, we are always on the phone together. He's sick, I'm on a plane. I'm sick, he's on a plane. My marriage blows up, he's coming after me. But most of us, and I put myself in this category, apart from my relationship with my wife, most of us don't have that kind of instant bond with a, with a friend that you immediately know will last for a lifetime. But that's what happens here. Either way, I think we still can pursue these kind of relationships. The text says that they made a covenant or they cut a covenant with each other. And what that meant was you would take an animal, you'd you'd sacrifice it, you'd cut it in two, you'd put one half over here, one half over here, you'd walk through the animal's pieces, and the point was, may it be done to me like that animal if I ever fail in this relationship. That was called cutting a covenant. Um, So, you know, this is pretty serious stuff uh, that that they're doing here. Um, and their careers will take them to different places, as we'll see. Uh, they'll experience moral failure. Uh, they'll have tremendous conflict. They'll endure great suffering. And yet they will be together uh, for the rest of their life. Jonathan solidifies the relationship by stripping himself of the robe that was on him, and giving it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And uh, there's a lot going on in that culturally. I found a long scholarly article about what that signified, and I'll read a paragraph from it. The clothes, armor, and weapons are so much a part of the man that they can serve as a vehicle of personal connection. And by means of them, Jonathan and David become one flesh. To wear the clothing and carry the weapons of another was to be imbued with his essence and to share intimately in his very being. In summary, then, Jonathan's gifts represented a personal pledge of love, and by giving them, Jonathan gave his heart and himself to David. By David accepting them, he accepted Jonathan's invitation to become his dearest friend, and so a life union was established between them. Besides this, the prince's gifts could serve David well in the king's service. So these are Israel's two of their greatest warriors, and these men uh, go to an elaborate extent to make a covenant to commit to one another for the rest of 
their life. I think I know of a couple other friendships like this. I've, I've known uh, Bobby and Luke Lanzoni for, for many years, and when Luke was in Berlin, didn't affect their relationship. I mean, it just, just nothing happens, nothing will ever happen uh, to change that relationship. They will be fast brothers until the day one of, them, one of them dies. And I suspect there's a lot more of those out there. It's just so we don't talk about them a lot. I suspect many of you have that kind of a friend. Well, one of the reasons this story sounds a little bit strange is of this idea of, of making a covenant or being so intentionally devoted to a friend other than your spouse. That's not something our culture does very much, although ancient people used to do it. C.S. Lewis, Lewis in The Four Loves wrote this quote, if we have it up there. Uh, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life, and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. So the idea of this level of commitment um, is present in, in our history. Uh, Wesley Hill has, has written a, a wonderful book called Spiritual Friendship, and, and he gives several examples of this. One of them is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German pastor that was martyred by the Nazis. He, uh, he had a friend... Um, and I won't. I don't speak German, but he had a friend that I probably shouldn't even try. Um, but his name was uh, Eberhard Bethke. And it's interesting as Bonhoeffer's prison correspondence came out, the number of letters that were written to Eberhard, who was newly married, uh, and, and the intensity of their affection for one another, it, it is remarkable. Uh, it, it was one of the things that sustained Bonhoeffer while he was in prison, this rich friendship with Eberhard. In the book, uh, Hill points out that in, in the East, in the Greek Orthodox Church, for many centuries, they had a rite called brother-making, where you would go before a priest and you would go to the communion table and you would make a covenant with one another at the table to be loyal friends until you died. Um, later in England, a rite developed where friend took vows of commitment to one another. And uh, Dr. Hill finds one example where two of these friends are buried together in the same crypt in an English church. And then he says, uh, What I and others like me are yearning for is not just a weekly night out or a circle of people with whom to go on vacation. We need something more. We need people who know what time our plane lands, who will worry about us when we don't show up at the time we said we would. We need people who can call and tell about that funny thing that happened in the hallway after class. We need the assurance that come hell or high water, a few people will stay with us, loving us in spite of our faults and caring for us when we are down. More than that, we need people for whom we can care ourselves. And these needs are not limited to singles. Being a young mother or father can be one of the most isolating experiences in the world. Now, uh, next week I want to trace with you their friendship through the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, But today I, I just wanted to make a couple observations about covenant relationships. Um... The first is that covenant friendships 
are built on a deep and lasting commitment. Um, one of the things that you notice about David and Jonathan is that they, from the beginning, have said, you're not getting away. You're stuck with me. Lose your faith, I'm there. Do something dumb morally, I'm there. You're stuck with me. That's the, I had a friend this week talk about a relationship that he tried to divorce last year. <laughs> he said, I couldn't do it. He wouldn't go away. <laughs> That's what these kind of uh, friendships are like. Another friend told me, he said, a situation, he said, we were very close friends. Then the guy just stopped calling me, and I don't know what happened, and they won't tell me. And that's what so often happens in our, in our uh, cultures. These relationships just sort of break down, and we don't know exactly why. Most of us are probably not comfortable with the idea of making a formal vow of commitment. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, cut up my dog and have you walk between it or something like that. Um, sometimes it's occurred to me, but for other reasons. Um, but I, I think we can ask the question, what does it look like for me to be fully committed to my people? And again, not 100 people, but whatever. If you got one, you got two, you got three. What does it mean for me to be fully committed to my people? Is it going to change when they move? Is it going to change with their vote in November? Uh, what, is it, what does it mean? Is it going to change when I get married? And that's something I think we ought to think about, too, is that when, when we marry, how does that affect the, the friendships that we have? And maybe, maybe it would be helpful to actually talk with our friends about that when we enter marriage and explore together what that might look like. Actually, I, I think I've heard so many times that one of the most painful things that can happen in a single person is your former best friend gets married and then you're a Christmas card friend. Um, certainly there could be something in between that. So a question. How committed are you to your people? How committed are you to your people? Second observation, um, and I, I'm not sure how to say this. This is not the best way to say it, but I think I should say it, so I'll say it. Um, Covenant friendships are not sexual relationships. You know, when, when you look at some of these stories and you, you read about them um, and you look at the intimacy of the language and the vulnerability and the passion, it's easy uh, to think, well, that was a sexualized relationship. And, and, and I guess some of them could have been, but I don't at all think that's the point of the David and Jonathan story. See, our culture has totally lost the capacity to envision intimacy without sexualization. Both men to men and, and you know, men and women. We just don't have a category for it. But David and Jonathan model, I, I think, is uh, two very masculine men who are very intimate, very vulnerable. Matter of fact, when... Jonathan dies, David writes this lament. It's just heartbreaking. He says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant you've been to me. Your love was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. 
Now, this was a warrior culture, and the bond between men was often stronger than the bond they had with their wives. In that period, kings particularly married for political reasons, and it wasn't always you know, for romantic love. These are powerful men expressing affection for their brother in the most intimate terms. And so, how are you doing there? <laughs> um, intimacy, vulnerability is part of, of a lifelong covenant friendship. Um, how are you doing there? When's the last time you shared with one of your people something really risky? Maybe something shameful. Maybe something that they could hurt you with. But I think that's what a covenant friendship is. The third little observation here is covenant friendships are costly. And we'll look at that a little more next week. We looked at it last week, but you know, David, or Jonathan gave up his status and his role. David would later uh, choose to protect Jonathan's family at great political expense. This commitment to walk with another person for the rest of their life is, is really costly. It, it'll, <laughs> it'll demand a lot from you. So maybe another question, are you willing to pay the price for a covenant relationship? Now, the option is to, to just look at relationships as uh, commodities and transactions. You, you use them until they no longer have value to you anymore. And then you dispose them and find a newer model. I don't think that's what God would have for us. So who are your people? And will you go the distance with them? Who are your people? And will you go the distance with them? Now, this leads us to one question, which is where we'll land. Um, Am I the kind of person who can do this? Do I I have the capacity as a human being to love this well and this long? I think I've I've told the, the little story about the the guy that goes out west and he turns up at this little uh, western town and, and he comes to the front and he sees this old, wise, kind of judge-like figure sitting on the front gate and the guy rides into the town and he says, uh, hey, tell me here, people good here, are they loving? Am I going to belong? Am I going to feel like I value here? And the old, wise man says, uh, well, well, tell me, how did, you, how did you feel in your last village? Oh, it was terrible. Yeah, these they were such jerks. They hated me. And I, the wise man said, it's kind of that way here, my friend. And then another man rides up, sees the old wise man. Hey, what kind of town is this? Are people going to love me? Am I going to fit in? And the old wise man says, well, what was it like in your past village? And, oh, they were so loving. We had such good friendships. I really miss them. And the old man says, it's like that here, too. 
I know that's a hard lesson to think about, that part of your relational problems are because of you. Well, we won't stay there very long. Um, <laughs> but I think it's a good question. Am I whole enough to do this? Are the broken relationships in my life a pattern that tell me that something's torn in my soul? That maybe I don't have the capacity to have a soul union because my own soul is so torn. So that's something to kind of, kind of think about. And when, I, you know, when I've been praying for our church this summer... Um, I keep coming up with a lot of healing themes. And I wonder if one of the things God wants to do in us, um, I wonder if, if he wants to go down into the basement, into that, you know, that intimate part of our lives, and, and repair some of the soul tears that keep us from intimate relating. Because you can't be shamed into it. I mean, I've tried. (laughs) You can't can't be guilted into it. You can't be ordered into it. It's what we all need, so why are we so bad at it? I think one of the reasons I fail in relationships, one of the reasons you fail in relationships, is not because I don't want them, and not because I haven't read the latest book or even heard good preaching on it, I think the reason why we feel relationally is because there are tears in our souls that keep us from knowing how to connect intimately with another soul. So maybe we could end today just with that question is, do I have the capacity for a lifelong covenant friendship? Let's pray.